0: Good morning, welcome to the Vineyard. You are in the second on our series of Who Does He Think He Is? Our series on just looking at Jesus and his I Am sayings and some of the claims he made about himself. And today's subject is I Am the Light of the World. So, H.G. Wells, a very famous author, uh, one of the most famous writers of the early 20th century, in fact, uh, wrote a number of books. Um, his book War of the Worlds is particularly famous. It's inspired radio shows and movies to this day. And as a futurist, uh, a futurist is someone who is pretty good at predicting what life is going to be like in the future. Not, you know, I suppose you could call them a secular life prophet. Someone who looks at where... Culture is going, what's happening, what type of things people are inventing, and they go, hey, you know, in 50 years' time, uh, we're going to be like living on the moon, you know. So I suppose Elon Musk would be a bit of a futurist. Where or not his predictions come true is a different story, but he he invents things based on what he thinks life is going to be like in the future. Um, And so H.G. Wells is one of these guys, and so he would claim a lot of things and write a lot of books about what he thought the future would be like, and actually a lot of that stuff came to pass. So things like, you know, um, he predicted widespread air travel before it was ever a thing. Uh, he predicted the atomic bomb coming into being before it ever it was ever invented. So a few interesting things. And so he had a lot of influence through his writing in the 20th century, and he held some pretty complex religious views. I wouldn't say he was a Christian. He had some sort of, I think, belief in God, but he kind of was probably more pantheistic if you read some of his stuff. Um, And he said this about Jesus, though. He said, I am an historian. I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Really interesting statement from somebody like that. Now, why was that? Why is Jesus so central in history? How was this man, who did not travel far from the borders of Israel, a backward Roman province back then, um, how was he able to change the world in such a dramatic way? And I'd like to suggest one reason, which is fitting of his claim, is that he brought a light into this side of eternity, into this world, that had not been seen since creation. You know, if you read the Bible, if you've ever read Genesis, you know, it says, in the beginning God said, let there be light. And that was before he invented the sun, invented, created the sun. The sun was created like on the third day. So you've got this period of days where there's light. Where's it coming from? Well, it's emanating from God himself. And so the world gets created, the fall happens, and then darkness reigns. And then Jesus arrives into the world, and he brings that light back again. And so I would like to theorize that in the beginning, let there be light, that the source of that light was Jesus himself. And so we get this thing where Jesus arrives and he begins to claim to be the light of the world, the light that represents revelation, the light that represents hope, and the light that represents life. And you know, the theme of light tends to follow that, doesn't it? We like light by and large. We often relate the notion of light to exposure, to something that lets us see clearly, oh, you know, let's shed some light on this subject. We use comments and phrases like that all the time. It's something that brings warmth and even brings life. It helps plants to grow. It gives us vitamin D. if We don't have too much of it. Um, And it even exposes the truth. We talk about light exposing the truth of something. And, you know, concerning his faith in Jesus, C.S. Lewis, who was a famous Christian author, said this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. So for C.S. Lewis, his faith in Jesus essentially was the light that enabled him to make sense of the world that he lived in, Made, helped him to interpret everything he was looking at. You know, he... He was living in that light, if you like. And so this is what we're going to dig in today. So why don't you pray with me before we have our first reading from Isaiah. And uh, Father in heaven, thank you so much that you desire to bring lights into our lives through your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we dig into the subject this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal Jesus to us as our light. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to come into this world to be a normal person and to bring this light even through much hardship and trial. And so soften our hearts to you this morning. Wherever we're at, whatever we're struggling with, whatever we're finding difficult to bring to you, Lord, would you begin to just chip away at that, soften us, help us to begin to trust you and know that you're good and you have our best interests at heart. Lord, guide my words this morning, let them be from you, let anything not of you be lost in your precious name, Lord Jesus, we ask you. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Isaiah chapter 9 first. It's going to be on the screen behind me, and then we'll jump over to John chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, it says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The words written hundreds of years before Jesus, really, really interesting. We believe as Christians that it's pointing to the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus himself. So let's jump over to John chapter 8, starting at the second half of verse 6. So what's happening here before I read it to you is, you know, the Pharisees have, and and, and religious leaders, have caught a woman in adultery. They've grabbed her and dragged her out. I don't know what state she's been in, but they've dragged her before Jesus. Jesus is in front of a crowd. Then they've decided they're going to test Jesus. Like, hey, Jesus, we caught this woman in adultery. The law says we should stone her. What do you say about that? Our thinking is that they were trying to trick him because if he said, "Yeah, let's stone this lady," uh, that they'd probably have done it, and then they would have blamed that blamed him, blamed it all on him when they when the Romans asked what was going on because the Romans were actually in charge; they couldn't just go around stoning people. And so there's all that kind of stuff going on. And then if he said, "No, no, leave her alone," and like, "Oh, you don't believe in the law; you're not really an authentic Jew," so all sorts of stuff they were trying to trick him out on. And so. As they're harassing him and speaking to him, we pick the story up from this point. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life as opposed to the death that comes from sin. So many of you would have heard that story before and talked about the woman caught in adultery and lots of lots of great messages can be preached from it. But I doubt many of you would have heard it read and gone straight on to Jesus' claim of being light in the world because it's in the same, we think, it's in the same situation. It wasn't a separate Jesus rescues the woman, stands up, says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the one that exposes everything and begins to teach them about that. So there's a few things I want to dig out of that as we go. And the first thing is this, is that the world that Jesus was born into was a very dark place. We forget that quite often when we look at the world of antiquity. It was dominated by the Romans. Uh, There's a guy called Tom Holland, a fairly famous British historian, for those of you who are into movies, it's not Tom Holland, the Spider-Man actor, it's another Tom Holland, okay, an older dude, much smarter, also English, writes about a bunch of history, okay, and he was for the longest time just a a fairly avid atheist and believed that all the good things in modern society, all the good things he liked about himself, the way he lived in his, you know, refined culture, if you like, about him, uh, was... Uh, a product of classic Greco-Greek and Roman um, thoughts. Everything came from there was his belief. This is until he began to study in depth as a historian. And what he found really disturbed him. He began to realize that ancient Greek and ancient Roman culture was largely cruel and dark. It was a culture that only favored those with power both in its ethics and in its practice. And as he began to press into that, he began to realize that all the good things he liked about himself and that he liked about the modern Western society we lived in didn't emanate from Greco-Roman thought. Maybe democracy, but that's about it. As he began to dig in, he began to realize that all the good things that happen in our society really find their source in the writings of Paul and fundamentally in Jesus. One thing he cited was that Julius Caesar, when he's a general, uh, conquers the Gauls of France. And it's a big political promotion for him, you know, politics and war. And as he comes back to Rome, he's being celebrated and he's in no way ashamed. He is celebrating and promoting the fact that he killed a million Gauls. This is what some of the ancient historians report. And not only that, he killed a million and he enslaved a million more. And people are running through the streets of Rome with placards celebrating this because it was a good thing. It was a good thing for us Romans to go and kill all those other people because we're better than them. And so no remorse, no, no thought of, oh, this isn't such a great thing to massacre all those people. Other things about that society in the Roman family, the father got to decide whether other family members lived or died. You know, a child didn't have an absolute right to life. The father decided in the first eight or nine days whether a child was going to be welcomed into the family or not. If a child was born with a physical deformity or some other kind of disability, or which just generally unwanted in any other way, Roman fathers typically just tossed the child out into the streets in the cold or killed them in some other way. Um, Children were illegally allowed to be abused by their parents, their fathers especially, and they could be sold as slaves at any time. Women didn't have it much easier. I don't know if you think women should have the same rights and opportunities as men. We do in the vineyard, but uh, where do you think we get that idea from, Women being equal to men? Where does that come from? Now, we all know that God designed the world so that a relatively equal number of baby boys and baby girls are born, don't we? You know, it's just, it's the miracle of nature. You know, it tends to be 50-50, more or less. But ancient historians have discovered that in ancient Greek and Roman cities where they have found actual, you know, records of people who were born, like census data, um, I got this from Rich Nathan, uh is that uh, they found that in these cities, men wildly outnumbered women. There were way more men than women in these cities. And they began to probe into that. Why is that? Well, the reason is, is because families didn't want girls. And ancient records show that there was virtually no large family in ancient Greece or Rome that had more than one daughter. If you're a woman here or a girl and you have an older sister... If you had been born in ancient Rome or Greece around about these times, you probably would not have seen your first birthday. The records in one ancient Greek city showed that of 600 families, only six, 1%, raised more than one daughter. Girls were just cast aside, you know, because, you know, you can send them to war and all that kind of stuff. And that terrible statistic is not reserved for the ignorant ancient people. That darkness isn't for back then. You know, that darkness exists in this world today. If you want to see that, there's quite a very informative, very interesting, slightly very disturbing documentary on Netflix about China's one-child policy. My wife and I watched it a few months ago, and this it's like ancient Rome right here today. That's, that's what was happening in China, you know, during their one-child policy girls were being put in baskets at the market, baby girls, in a basket at the market. And that was parents who really were really hoping they would be found because you know, it was maybe a second child or something like it. But uh, just really, really bad stuff because in that culture, boys are valued way more than girls are. And so if a baby girl was born first, you know, parents were under immense pressure, long as like 10 years ago, immense pressure just to put that baby out in the street. There's a disturbing interview of one girl talking to one guy who succumbed to the pressure of his family and did that, and he lives in regret of it because that little girl died. We live in a dark world, and the world that Jesus was born into was pretty dark as well. And before the teaching of Jesus began to be practiced, as well as this, men could just divorce their wives simply by ordering their wives out of the home. You know, I don't know, maybe the bacon was cold. They could just toss them out. No reason. The early church changed all of this. They prohibited putting baby girls to death and rescued them from the streets. The early church would go around and pick them up and take them home and raise them as their own. The early church forbid men from just simply divorcing their wives for any reason. And they also rejected the double standard which allowed men to have sexual relations with anybody they wanted, but women had to be virgins when they got married. And the early church put down on men too and said, "No, no, no! You need to be as as uh, as your wife is. You need to be exclusive to her as she is exclusive to you." And so, where did the early church get this idea that women had as much worth as men? Well, you know, all we have to do is go read the gospels. You see, they got it from Jesus. Jesus, you know, straight up you know, just condemned easy divorce. He forbid men just to divorce women for any old reason. And he welcomed women to be amongst his early disciples. He would teach them. They were part of the the circles of everything that he did with the men that were normally exclusive only to men. And then in his resurrection, in his new life, it's the woman that he chooses to be the first declaration. Oh, I don't know. What's the word? you know, the first proclaimers of his resurrection. It's the woman he sends out to go tell the men because they're the ones that had the faith. And so early on, that seed is sown into the early church. And in the early church, women were leading and all that kind of stuff. And then we kind of got we got lost along the way with that as we got into like the Roman ages and so on. And so we live in a world of darkness, but that darkness needs to be overcome. And two thousand years ago, a light broke in and began to do just that. Began to drive back the darkness. And Jesus believed He was that light, that uh, that came in to drive back and defeat the darkness. And He was that light. Jesus is the light of the world. He brought the light of the kingdom so that people could be set free, so that children could be valued that women could be restored to their original purposes and so that men could turn away from lives of violence. You know, back in the day before Jesus, if you were born a boy, you just needed to make sure you knew how to be violent because that's, that's what life was like. You know, springtime came, everybody went to war. You wanted new stuff, you went to war and you took it from somebody else. Pretty much how that world worked. And he brought light and value to babies by coming into the world as one. He submitted himself to be a harmless child. And shortly after he's born, he's taken to the temple. And Simeon says this about him. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, as he prays to God. He says, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And so this baby is born into the world and begins to drive back the world's darkness. And as well as he goes through his ministry and he does his miraculous healings and he's setting free of people during his time on earth, he also does it practically. He drives darkness back practically. here. Yeah, in this instance where he rescues the woman from being stoned to death, you know, he rescues her in a sense from justice because he gives her the opportunity of mercy. You know, I mean, you know, obviously, I think Jesus was probably thinking like all of us are thinking: Where was the bloke? Where was the dude in this scenario? I mean, did he, could he just run faster than the religious leaders? Is that the deal? You know? I mean, obviously, I don't think it was lost in Jesus, the hypocrisy of the moment. So he saves her, he saves her from, the, from, from the punishment she deserved, but he also saved her from being scapegoated and saved her from hypocrisy. But then he says to her, you know, go and sin no more, you know? He doesn't let her off the hook completely. He says, go and sin no more. But he rescues her. He goes, as well as that, he goes and he hangs out with people with leprosy. He actually touches them when he heals them, which was just incomprehensible in that day. Those People with skin diseases were cast out. You know, they had to wear a bow and stuff like that. Get away. And so he begins to go to the afflicted, to those that are outcast, those who are seen as the lowest of the lows and he begins to bring life to them. He begins to reject the darkness that they're trapped in. And this makes its way into the early church, and the early church begin to behave like this, and it begins to cause cataclysmic results in society. And the darkness of society is exposed as the church begins to love as Christ loved. And the darkness gets driven back, and the pagans don't like it, because the Christians have a light about them that is shaming them, in the way that they live. And it changes the world to the point that we have the world we live in today. And, you know, that light is visible in many, many things, if you're willing to pay attention and look for it. Do you see the effects of the light of the kingdom, the light of Jesus in your daily life? If you don't, let me throw a couple of things out that are directly connected to Jesus' arrival and what he did in the early church and Paul's writings. Human rights. Human rights is almost an e- exclusively a Christian thing. Okay, now you know, in some cultures it, it, it's no use to kind of undermine Christianity. But you know, if people sat back and thought, it's you know, it's a it's a Christo-Judeo thing because we are created in the image of God and Jesus lives that out when he comes. You know, children going to school, the sanctity of human life, the value of woman, justice for the poor and the outcasts grace and mercy given to those who do not deserve it or did not earn it. These things are actually pretty core to our society. Even the secular people who reject Jesus, atheists who reject Jesus, their value system, whether they like it or not, is fundamentally Christian and Pauline. You know, they don't want to admit it. They try and, you know, couch it in humanistic terms and paint it nice pretty colors. But really... You know, if you're going to have an ancient rock that you've got to base on, it's based on ancient Christianity. It's based on the light that Jesus brought into the world. It's pretty fascinating. Um, I really encourage you, uh, if you want to, just explore this a little bit more. This Tom Holland quote that I got earlier was in a discussion that he has with uh, on a podcast with N.T. Wright, which is one of the preeminent um, New Testament theologians in the world. And you, can, you can find it on Google. There's, couple, there's small five-minute pieces on it, but there's a whole hour a bro- video broadcast of it. You just go Tom Holland and N.T. Wright. It's the first thing that comes up. It's a really cool thing to watch. And as well, as what's really cool is N.T. Wright is arguably one of the smartest Christians in the world. Right, it's just super smart. And at certain points in the conversation, he sits back and he goes, "Oh, fascinating." He's like a—he's like he's learning things. And for somebody who's really smart and loves to learn, it's really funny to watch them learn because it's like a kid in a candy store. All of a sudden, they discover a new flavor. They're like, oh. and so this light comes into this world, you know. And the fact that we we talk about things and we talk about the poor and the, and and we talk about justice for them and you know you know we look at our political parties and you one political party really wants to talk about freedom all the time freedom of this freedom of that we have another political party that wants to talk about you know the poor and 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 justice for the afflicted and and they try and you know get us to think that the two are opposites they're not opposites if you read the Bible both of them got the ideas from the Bible by the way both of them they just like to pick and choose which bits they like so you as the Christian voter need to be aware of that, that whichever party you're voting for, they probably only like a little bit of your faith, not the whole enchilada, right? If you think they like the whole enchilada, you need to start start reading some, some documentation, you know? Jesus likes maybe a little bit of your political party. There's a lot about your political party, but he probably doesn't like. So just be aware of that as you head into the doomed season of election. So Jesus' followers... Right, it's, It builds on. The, the light isn't exclusive just to Jesus. If you have given yourself to be a follower of Jesus, now whether you're a good one or a bad one, it's inconse- inconsequential. But Jesus wants to give you that light. And by give you that light, I mean he wants to put that light in you. Jesus is the light of the world, but when you begin to follow him and surrender your life to him, he places that light in you. And we corporately as a church have that light. And we're supposed to take that light into the world. And so, the way society's changed over these past two, 2,000 years, or some things I've mentioned, is because faithful followers of Jesus who've gone before us have recognized that they had the light of the world in them and they had to go and push that light forward and make a difference. And so, we as followers have this light in us and we must let it shine. We must let it shine somehow, somewhere, using the gifts of God's given us and the, the personalities that we have. We have to let the light of the world shine out of us. Hemingway, who you will no doubt know, wrote that the world breaks everyone. A little bit skeptical, but I think he's kind of right. You know, when, you, when you're when you young, if you have a good upbringing, parents who love you, you hit university, college, good course, good teachers, you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know, Other people have it a bit rougher growing up. But eventually, you're going to hit something in life that breaks you. Who knows what it is. But life is rough. It can get a bit rough sometimes. So I I think he's mostly right. I think I have met one or two people who are in their 50s and 60s, and I think, wow, you really have had easy street the whole long time. Because the thing they stress out most about is like, I don't know, they went to the store and they didn't have their favorite flavor, curry sauce. I'm like, okay, if that really is your biggest struggle in life, You've got it good. But, you know, most people have some form of brokenness in their life, or they know someone who has really encountered some brokenness. And Jesus brings light into that. And he gives you light so that you as a person, as a friend, as a family member, or us as a church can begin to bring that light of hope into the brokenness all around us. Sometimes when we're broken and we cry to God, He He shines His light into us and He gives us hope that we're going to get through this. Other times we're struggling in brokenness and we come across somebody that Jesus has just anointed and they bring us hope. We encounter them. they, They love on us. They pray for us. They walk through our trials and our hardships with us. And we just recognize later on, wow, that was the light of God shining on me through another person. I don't know if you've had that experience. I know lots of people have. You get the privilege of being that light. God has invited you into the, into the work of driving back the darkness. On a macro scale with us corporately as we live as the church, but on an individual scale as you encounter life with one person after the other who just needs a bit of the light that you've got just to get through that day. It's in you. And then sometimes you're having a bad day. And you're like, oh, Jesus, I need that light. I need you to get me through this day. Just like do something. And then out of the blue, someone phones you, say, hey, you want to go hang out at the mall? Let me buy you a coffee or whatever it is. And God rescues you in some way. But the light of God is in you and you're called to let it shine. So what, what might that look like for you? Just let that float around in your brain for a minute. Who in your sphere of relationship needs the light of the world that dwells in you? And how can you let that light shine on them? You know, you have a neighbor, a friend is just going through a hard time. You don't have to go running in there and praying tongues over them or something like that. But, you know, you can take a, if you're not teetotal, take a beer round or a coffee round and say, hey, man, I was just thinking of you. And you want to go out for a coffee? Or, you know, my na- one, my neighbors, I've tried to get to know all the neighbors in my cul-de-sac and... You know, the ones that are more open to friendship, I kind of build that relationship being a good neighbour, you know, and and that kind of stuff, you know. You gotta think that way as a follower of Jesus. Hey, I've got light in me. I've got a if there's somebody in my street that just needs me to care about them, I need to find ways to show that care because you're letting that light touch them. And it might make a little difference in them, might make a big difference in them. But ask Jesus to reveal that to you. Because he is the light of the world, but he's put that light in you and he's calling you to take it forth. And then the question is today, it's like, do you have that light in you? Do you feel like, no, I don't have that light in me. I'm, I feel dark inside. I feel lost. And I'd encourage you that today is the day to just surrender more of your life, your whole life to Jesus and to ask him to pour his light and his life into you. That's what it means to be born again. We turn away from the darkness and we say, God, I... I want you to pour your light into me and help me to be somebody that wants your light in this world. To start over. To serve a new master, Jesus, rather than whatever it was we were serving before, ourselves, our money, our whatever. And to become carriers of that new life that he promises us. So that's your challenge this week, you know. Go shine that light and if you feel like you don't have it, I encourage you to come down at the service when we're singing our last song and and just say, hey, I want more of the life of Jesus in me. I want to surrender more of my life to you. And then our prayer team will just help you with that. Stand up. Scott, do you want to come on down? If you're a guest with us here at the Vineyard, um, we just uh, end our service with a time of response. We call it ministry time. And so we're just going to, I'll just say a little prayer, welcoming God's presence in a minute. And we'll just sit in a little silence. And that's your invitation just to pray any prayers that you've got to pray. Do any business with the Lord that you feel you need to do? Um, You might have come to church today, something on your heart that's got absolutely nothing uh, related to what I'm speaking about, and that's fine. Uh, But this is just your opportunity to connect with Jesus. So I I invite you to ask him to make himself real to you. Father, we thank you that you are present by your Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we just ask that you just come settle on this entire building right now. We know that you're here. We ask that you just make your presence known and speak to us.